Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Reverend Karan R. Sadler. Originally from Nashville, Reverend Sadler now calls the Baltimore, Maryland area home. She earned her Bachelor of Arts in Religion and Theology from the American Baptist Theological College. She's a graduate of Hood Theological Seminary with a Master's in Divinity. For three years, she studied at Pfeiffer University, pursuing a second Master's in Marriage and Family Therapy. During her internship at the Pfeiffer Institute, she provided intensive therapy to individuals couples, and families. She's worked in corporate America for over 20 years and is recognized for her organizational leadership, verbal, and written communication skills. Presently, she serves as the National Manager of Health Programs for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People at their headquarters. She's responsible for maintaining and strengthening the NAACP's commitment to HIV-AIDS as a high-priority and high-profile issue. A dynamic and diverse speaker in her own right, she's been called upon to speak and teach to a variety of audiences. Reverend Sadler is also an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. She is currently serving as a member on the executive board of the Hope Springs organization in Baltimore, Maryland. Reverend Sadler, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Good greetings. I am wonderful. Thank you for having me. Uh, Michelle, it's a pleasure to uh, be able to speak with you and the audience. Well, I mean, it's so nice to meet you. You know, so you were born in Nashville. I mean, it's a lovely town, but now you're in Maryland. You know, you still kind of have that southern flavor, but how long have you been in in Maryland? Um, I love my southern flavor. I will always have my southern flavor. I refer to myself as quite the southern belle. Um, Uh I I have been in what we call the DMV, and it's funny because people think it's the uh, Department of Motor Vehicle, but it's the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area for uh, 10 years, almost 10 years now. So uh, I am excited about being here, actually working for the NAACP, actually is what brought me or uh, caused my transition here, and uh, it's been a, a journey. You know, I was looking at your page, and one of the things that I think is, like, just so powerful and that you say it was, you say, I was not refined from a little girl to the lady I am today by myself. 
who are some of the people who influenced you to become the woman you are today? Well, thank you. And the page you're referring to is actually my website, um, ladykaran.com. And I'm referring to, you know, we all have a village. You know, we talk about that it takes a village to raise a child. And I, you know, I, I really didn't experience quite that village because my mother was very hands-on. And so I would have to say first it was my mother uh, who left us um, in 2013, God rest her soul. Mm-hmm. She's my angel. She watches over me. Um, she taught me, I would say she taught me how to, my work ethics. And I remember her um, working very hard. It was myself uh, and a sibling and my grandmother. And she was very adamant about, you know, going to work day and night, whatever, it, it, you know, it required to ensure that we had food on the table and that the bills were paid. She did that. So I would say um, my influence around my work ethics and uh, who I am as a, a strong black African-American woman would be from her, and then my aunt, um, who is my double, double angel. I love her with all my heart. She's also uh, transitioned many, many years ago, and I just remember she taught me how to be a lady, so that's why I refer to myself as the Southern Belle. Um, Uh She taught me how to be a lady, and she taught me how to, uh, and both of them taught me to respect myself, to love myself, uh, and to live with integrity and to and dignity, and uh, always walk with your head high with confidence. And you know, have I always in every day uh, had that? No, I've had my moments like all of us do. But I, it is in those times that you find your strength when you once you've been able to persevere beyond that. So those would be the two key individuals. Um, that have been very influential in my life and uh, helped shape me. And I tell people all the time, we begin being shaped at a very early age. And so as we're working with young ladies or we're around young ladies or young men, know that what you're doing and what you're saying, they're like sponges and they absorb all of that and I absorbed all that they had to offer me as a young woman. You know, I work with young women. I often tell them, especially when they have small children, that children learn as much from watching as then what you you what you tell them. You know how they often what was that old saying? I say, do as I say, not as I do. But often young people watch and they do. You yeah. know, based on that. Do you find yourself now seeing more and more of your mother? and your aunt, those lessons that they taught you, you know, do you still see them, that learning continuing, even though you know they're watching over you, but that, you know, some days you sort of look in the mirror or you say something and go like, hmm, mom would have said that or, or my aunt would have said, would have handled that this way. Uh, well, I, so it's funny you ask that question. Um, Everyone tells me that I am the mini-me of my mother. Like, I have her spunkiness. Everybody who knows me personally, I'm feisty, uh, I'm witty, and so they would share with you that, that, that I'm my mother's child with no question. Um, I, I have to say, and I learned this because I have a son. My son is 29 years old, and I have a son. And I, to your point, I had to learn how some things in our older generation and our forefathers fathers and mothers, that you take what you need and you leave some of the things you don't. So I, I really can't reflect on anything that would I would say that she 
I, I, would, I would ponder and say, oh, mom said that or auntie said that. But I will say that it, the things that I opt to leave behind, I implemented as a parent. And um, you, you said it early on, we were raised. I was very much raised to be quiet. You go in, uh, the uh, children went into another room. They were not part of adult conversations, and you were seen and not heard. But I, with my son, I started that uh, teaching, but then I learned that this is a new generation, and I hope that as your, the listeners are, are grasping onto these words that we understand whether we like it or not, things are not as they used to be. I think there are very important principles that we and morals that we want to maintain and keep in life, but I think allowing our young people to have a respectful voice uh, and be and find their own identity is very important. So I learned actually with my son as a single mother at the time to allow him to really be free and and, and not too free, but to be mm-hmm. to, to find who he, find out who he really uh, is and who he can become as a young man. And, and he's an amazing young man now. Um, I think as a result of me not being so hard and 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 hushing him and quieting him, but allowing him to find that voice to be um, who he is, who God, or de- who God designed him to be. So I do, but I do, to your, also I do reflect on my mother, and uh, I will say this, with, uh, share this with you. Um, when I'm having very hard times or rough days, you know, I actually will say, Auntie, I need you to show up. Uh, I need you to be present. And uh, not saying that God is not and not saying that I don't call on Jesus, because I definitely do call on them. But sometimes when you just need that angelic host to just uh, hoover or, or, or to be with you or be, to have that presence, I refer to them in addition to my God or to Jesus. So I definitely refer to them often. And then the other person, and we, I'll, we can go to your next question, but um, my mother's boyfriend, I remember him very vividly. And um, when I was dating men and married, um, he actually set the standard for the men that I allowed in my life. And I think a lot of that has gone away, the chivalry, the respect, mm-hmm. the really like, you know, the opening the doors, spoiling you, all of that. And that may, you know, look, that may have hurt me because I'm really spoiled, but I've learned to spoil myself and not necessarily depend on other people to spoil me. But he really shaped on, helped me understand what relationships look like, which probably influenced my passion for going into uh, or pursuing a degree in marriage and family therapy. But I'm going to stop right there. Well, you know, I mean, it's so much that I can ask. I am my mother's mini-me, you know. And oh, nice. Some, you know, and I have had those days where it's like sometimes, you know, sometimes I think she's playing jokes on me, and other times I just sort of look and I'm, you know, and like you, I should say, you know, and I am her older sister. Sometimes it is. It's sort of like, okay, I need you guys, you know, have my back, you know. But but it is. It's so important. And the fact that you went into, you know, family, working with family. And, you know, and even with how you were talking about your son, and you saw families have evolved and changed, but there are core values that you try to instill and families, and mothers into sons, mothers into daughters, fathers into daughters. And, you know, and how you said how, you know, you learned to take care of and pamper yourself. Now, this, this 
page on your website, you headed, is it Soteria? Which Soteria, yes. Yes. How did you come, how did you determine that this was this page that you wanted to have on your website? And, you know, do you have people go like, what are you talking about with Soteria? So actually, um, Soteria was actually given to me. With, uh, I birthed Soteria um, when I lived in Charlotte. And I used to have a ministry that was called KRS Ministries. And actually, in KRS Ministries, I knew, you know, I think you probably will remember the uh, woman that art loose. Mm-hmm. And by that, that Bishop Jakes would do every year, and I, I said to myself, you know, why are people happen, having to pay hundreds of dollars or you know thousands of dollars to fly across country when, you know, we can also, you know, God gave me the vision to do it. Uh, it, it was birthed in Charlotte, and people did come, you know, around from you know from other nations and other countries and from all over the world to attend the conference, but. The, the vision that God gave me was we're not dealing with the holistic individual. And so uh, having my Master's of Divinity and, under, and studying Bible and theology, I, I've learned how to speak Greek and read, you know, the various biblical languages. And so Sotira was just, just so profound. And uh, so just for our listeners, Sotira is a Greek word that actually – talks to or speaks to, to uh, holistic deliverance in the body, mind, and spirit. And we have to, and I've learned this even in my, in, in my training as a therapist, is that we have to, to speak to the whole person. And growing up in church, being very active, you know, from the age of 13 on, uh, nine on, excuse me, nine on, you we get caught up in the semantics of church and the traditionalism of church, but we miss the whole person in church. So we learn how to be emotional and we learn how to go and be traditional by going to church every Sunday or to Bible study. But how much of that is really ministering to the individual, it's him, you know, to him or her? And so we live with these issues in our minds, you know, the stress, the depression, the worry, um, we live with the that affects our heart, so we and the spirit. So you know, our spirits are maybe gloomy or they may be heavy, and then our body. You know, all those things affect either positively or negatively affect our body. So stress can cause you to become tired, lethargic, uh, stressed out, high blood pressure. There's so many things. So we've got to be able to speak. And so back to Soteria, um, I created a. It was KRS Ministry. And I had an annual conference for women, and so not only did I deal with the whole person, but it also talked. I taught them how to deal with their finances, how to, how to live debt free, how to become debt free. Um, so it dealt with every aspect of an individual. So there was financial freedom. Um, there was you know learning how to love yourself and empower yourself as an individual, and not take, you know, abuse from people, uh, how to set goals, how to be business owners. So I really, so, so Tia really is that. We, I dealt with all of those components. And then, of course, that night, every night, we would end with dynamic preaching and, and, and singing. So um, that's just who I am. I've learned to just minister and uh, pour into people holistically and not just one, one piece. And I think 
in the African American or black community, whomever you're, whomever or however you want to refer to the community, everybody's different. I've learned to actually uh, minister, uh, con consider all aspects versus just the aspects that we think just tie or link to the church or just tie or link to what's comfortable to us. Mm. When did you feel that you had the calling to go into the ministry? You know, you, you've gone to... You studied religion, you studied theology, you've been seminary. You're, you know, when did you feel that calling? So, well, you heard me earlier say 13, and actually when I said I've been in church, I've been in church my whole life. But at the age of 13, um, I was like the Sunday school secretary. I taught the adult class Sunday school, uh, Sunday school class. And so I've always been in church. And I ran for a very long time because when you have, are in church for such a long time, you see a lot of things. And I just knew I didn't want to be a bootleg preacher. I didn't want to be one that was isogeting versus exogeting. And so I was like, I just, you know, God, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I got to a place in my life where things were going well. And I refer to this moment as a brick wall. I just couldn't go any further in any aspect of my life. And I'm a, I said to God, I said, God, what is going on? Like, why? Like, I'm, I'm praying with you, and I'm, I'm travailing, and I'm worshiping, because I'm a real big worshiper. And he said, until you are obedient, I'm not going to allow you to go further. So I called my pastor at the time when I was in Nashville, and I said, I, want to, I need to meet with you. And um, I sat down with him, and it's funny because we have to be careful of the words that we say because our words really influence and impact people whether we realize it or not. And I sat down with him and I said, you know, Pastor, I, I'm struggling with this call that I'm hearing, these words that I'm hearing God say to me, and I shared them with him, but then I reminded him of a conversation that we had. And part of my struggle was not just not wanting to be a bootleg preacher, but my pastor, I met with him earlier, like years before, and he said, oh, yeah, I can see you in the, as an evangelist, but I really don't see you as a pulpit preacher. So mm-hmm. when he said that, I never thought that I would be called to preach. And so I thought, okay, this is just not, you know, I'll, you know I, I'll do Toastmasters, and I did Toastmasters, and I graduated from Toastmasters, and then I became a part of the National Speaking Association for the State of Tennessee. And I said, okay, I'll just use that, and you know, I won't ever talk about you know, mention God in those moments, but I'll just talk about, you know, empowerment or that higher being. And so that was my excuse. And then when I told him what the, what the Holy Spirit was saying to me, he said, well, I believe that. I definitely see you preaching. And then I reminded him of his, of his, of his initial words to me, and he apologized. And then from that day on, I said, okay, God, I surrender to you. And I tell anybody that feels that they're called is to know that you know that you're called because people will cause you to question your calling. People will call you will cause you to question who you are, if you are good enough, uh, equipped enough, and being you know even in the LGBTQ community, uh, people think that you know because you are whether you're lesbian, gay, or transgender or bisexual that you shouldn't be a Christian. Like how can you call yourself a Christian? So. There are so many things you have to be very clear about um, when um, you're walking the walk. And I've even been a first lady, and, I tell, and I've been role model for first ladies, and I share with first ladies that, 
you know, that's even in, a, in and of itself a calling. Just because a man or a person or individual you may find attractive and really what you're really seeing is probably the anointing on him or her, doesn't mean that that person's called to be your partner or your, your mate or your significant other. Because being a, a first lady or being the first gentleman is really about, is a call in and of itself because there's a lot, a lot of responsibility that comes with that. So I knew, I knew that from, you know, again, to answer your question, because of a very hard and difficult journey where I really couldn't push past, and I just sought the faith and the voice of God, and he was very clear that obedience was very key. And I live a life now through obedience, and so I don't have to have as many hard knocks, and I can avoid as many as I can. Now, you know, I have interviewed a few uh, women in the ministry, and many of them talked about about that, you know, um, when they went to their pastor, their spiritual advisor, um, having been told a different road, you know, like, like I said, you could be an evangelist or being the associate pastor, but then almost like a glass feeling to be able to step up into the ministry. Did you feel any biases because you were a woman to, you know, as you were going through through your studies, as you were looking to find your role? Actually, um, Fortunately, I did not have that experience, um, and I, I mean, as a matter of fact, it was just the opposite. My uh, pastor made, I mean, and this was before I even acknowledged my calling. I was, I've always been a go-getter, overachiever, workaholic, like, I pushed myself. So I was very active in the church. I ran um, the tape ministry. I ran the um, Christian bookstore that we own. I... Um, served as his uh, administrative executive executive assistant. I, mean, I just had so many hats, so many different times. So I, I was over hospitality. So no, I never, and I, so, I know that may perceive, be perceived as um, female or gender type roles, but that was before I, I acknowledged my calling. Um, and then after that, uh, he was very supportive, you know, as me being a preacher. And um, I even transitioned out of a lot of those roles that I was fulfilling, and other people uh, filled those roles. And then shortly after there, uh, honestly, um, Sister, Michelle, uh, Sister Michelle, I actually transitioned, and, and that's when I moved to Charlotte. So not so right when I moved to Charlotte was when I actually became an, an ordained elder um, minister, depends on who you're talking to, but I'm, uh, in our denomination, uh, an elder is the highest level you can go, but um, we refer to it ourselves as reverend. So I became ordained then when I transitioned to Charlotte from Nashville, but I, that was not my experience. But I do want to say that um, when you are, as a woman, when you're called to the ministry, we must remember that we don't have to prove anything to any human being, male or female. And I often see women trying to outdo, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, from my, in my opinion. Just be yourself. Be whoever God has mm-hmm. called you to be. Uh, we're not here to compete with anybody. Um, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. Just be your, show up as your authentic self, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, in fact, that's what, what I think that's the, the, the theme that I've learned from each one of these these women, as they, they came into their own, that's what exactly what they did. 
Well, we're going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the NAACP. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. by Michelle Brown, and I am talking with the Reverend Karen Sadler. Karen, I'll tell you, you talked about two women, your mother and your aunt, and I had an aunt who I also think of, and one of the first things that she did for us when we were old enough to understand what she was talking about was she got us memberships to the NAACP. Wow. She took us to things that involved the NAACP because she thought it was so important. In fact, I tell people that I had a card, uh, NAACP membership, and registered to vote long before I learned how to drive a car. I mean, nice. it's just like those things were important. Did you were you involved with the NAACP as a young person and? What brought you to along this path to being a part of the organization? So I came to the NAACP. Um, so I was, as I'm, as I'm, I share, I was lived in Charlotte. Um, was very all my life very involved in the church. And uh, when I moved to Charlotte, I actually um, had a job basically at a major organization, corporation, and. I just, one day it hit me, it's like, you know, and if you go to my website, I talk about purpose. And I said to myself, you know, this is not fulfilling. What, what purpose? And I'm, a, and I'm all about leaving a legacy. And I'm like, what legacy can I leave, leave by doing a job? Granted, I have bills to pay. So I decided then that I would go work and do something that was more purposeful. So I transitioned to an organization in Charlotte and stayed there for about three to five years. And someone knew of the work that I did in the region of um, the, the southeast region and sent me the job description for the NAACP, and I immediately applied. Had no, did not think I had the opportunity to have such a, um, to be lucky enough to have the opportunity to work for such a uh, national organization, which will be celebrating our 110th year, 110 years this year at our national convention. But um, so I, that's what brought me, purpose is what brought me here. Um, so I was doing HIV work in Charlotte, and taking this job actually allowed me to scale up my work in the health field around HIV and raising awareness 
around the epidemic that continues to disproportionately impact our community. And so purpose would be the reason why I am here at the NAACP. My passion for people in the community and seeing us succeed and helping to educate us. Uh, you know, the word talks about that the pe- people perish because of the lack of knowledge. And um, I sat on a panel last year, and someone asked me, what keeps me up at night? And that was a unique question. And immediately, I don't know why, but the first thing that came to my mind happened to be, when are we as a people going to understand, like your mother and your, grand- your aunt and your family and you understand and so many others, that we've got to come together as a community to unify on so many levels in so many capacities to really make a difference, to create that systemic and that institutional change that is so needed for us as people of color. And so I'm here to be an instrument, a vessel of God, to do just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I mean, it's so, it's like, there was a like I said, we had this membership. There was a time when you know you sort of take it for granted. You know the NAACP will always be there, but then you see it come back. But then you go back and see historically, because I know um, we're going to talk about you being here in Detroit. But there's a history with Detroit. I was reading about um, Dr. Osai and Sweet, where and this was back in the day, and here was this this black in our part of our history where, you know, where they were going to run him out of his house, and it was the NAACP that came, provided assistance for the defense of Dr. Sweet and his co-defendants. It's like an organization that has been there but has changed with the times. And, you know, and the fact that you're there, and, you know, who would have thought, I mean, if I said to someone, you know, well, she talks about, HIV and STDs and stuff, you go like the NAACP? I mean, when you did you have any ideals coming in there that you were, like, pleasantly surprised to hear about the openness and the fact that they got it, that these were things that were affecting the community that needed to be addressed? Um, I, I, I have to say I probably was, um, and this is so weird because when I say, tell the story, I, I grew up in the South. But, you know, everyone's perception or experience becomes their own reality. And so being from Nashville, it was just a different type of discrimination. Um, So, of course, it's the South. And so there was the understanding that if I don't like you, you don't like me, we understand our differences and we just go in our separate corners and mind our business. But as I began to mature and develop as a young woman, moving to Charlotte, there was more of the subliminal messages that I would see or hear. Then when I got to the D.C. Maryland area, it was very clear. And as I traveled nationally for the last almost a decade doing the work I do here for the association, it's very, very clear of the racism that exists. And I think even, you know, with us being nonpartisan, that um, we see it a whole lot now under our current administration how certain things are just allowed that should not be tolerated, and, and people are more so empowered now. So I, it's funny, as I get older, I see it more and more, and I don't think that it has to do with where I live. I think it has to do with what is just happening in the world, that we've got to be that voice. And that's why I said earlier, 
if we just as a community understand what we can do when we come together. Um, and, you know, you see these groups that unify, such as, you know, the white supremacists or the Nazis mm-hmm. or whomever, they come together to fulfill an agenda. Um, and we have to come together to fulfill the agenda that benefits our community. And until we understand that, um, we're going to continue to see a lot of unfortunate things continue to happen. Yeah, you talked about how you travel around. Do you, do you, because I know like with HIV and AIDS and particularly in healthcare, I mean, sometimes people think, oh, well, there are people in the north or in other areas who think like, oh, well, you know, we've got prep, we've got this, it's almost gone. And then you'll read about how it's at epidemic levels like in more rural areas and in other areas. Do you find that? even with all of these means of communication that we're supposed to have and everybody is always connected, either on Facebook, Twitter, and all, and they've got their phone, that we really, as a community, aren't, aren't communicating really well with each other? Around, you mean around the issue? Mm-hmm. I, I think, so what I found, because I work specifically in the faith community, so there are a lot of churches that are doing phenomenal work and a lot of faith leaders and, and individuals is doing a lot of phenomenal work in this space, which has helped normalize testing and help people get into care and to live longer lives. Um, but there's so much work to do. And the problem is everybody thinks it can't happen to me, it's going to happen to those other people, it's going to happen to, you know, the gay people. But it's, people don't realize that it's not just the, you know, gay people who are, are living with HIV. Let's be real. Um, I've been in nursing homes where there were heterosexual people when rates are among older older people are mm-hmm. astronomical. They're they're huge. In addition to our young our youth. So the you know, HIV is no respect of, of any person or any race, but it, it can affect anybody who is having sex unprotected. That's just the bottom line. And we have to raise that awareness and not think that it cannot happen to us. And it really can't. And I think so for me, to answer your, to your point, we just have to do a better job of being open to, to know, to information and mm-hmm. not rely on myths or information that's not factual. And if you're unclear about it, do your own research. And mm-hmm. that's very, very important for us as a community and not wanting people to give us what we think we should have or what we think what we think they they want us to know or what's best for us, but understanding that we take the initiative to find out what we need to know for our best interest and so we can pass it on to the next person in the community. Now, you know, you mentioned that, that you know, you work with the faith group, and you think many people think of the NAACP as civil rights, but there's also faith, and through those, throughout the years, black people have turned to their church. The church has been more than just like a place of faith. It's a place of sanctuary. It's a place of hope and inspiration. But, you know, we hear all the time now people saying, you know, that, oh, homophobia in the black church is just horrible. But at the same time, we see welcoming and inclusive churches. I tell people, like, the first gay person I met was at my grandmother's table, you know, and we were talking about race, you know. And 
how, what is, do you find that, that, you know, you have to help make that church again be that place where it isn't like someplace where you come on Sunday and then the rest of the week you live in these, sometimes in some urban areas, it looks like a burned out war zone, but every Sunday everybody comes and then you go back to all of these other things that you have to deal with. Is this part of your message and part of what the collaboration you have by working with the NAACP and communities of faith that you're trying to help build strong, healthy communities? You just asked me a lot of questions. That was a lot. <laughs> Um, so I, let me let me try to unpack that. Um, okay. So the church, yes, thank thank God for the churches that are open and welcoming of same gender loving individuals. Um, thank God for those churches um, that whether they you know they don't have to be affirming churches, but just churches where there's little judgment. And for me, if you've heard me talk when I've gone out and spoken about, because I talk about for the association, I actually oversee our HIV work, uh, and I see I oversee our um, kidney disease and dialysis options work in addition to our LGBTQ work. So I see all oversee all those components, and and across all of those, any, whenever I speak, the one thing I talk about is love. I don't care what color we are. I don't care what, how we identify or what orientation we are. That's one thing I think we miss as a community of human beings is love. We are quick to judge. We are quick to point fingers. We are quick to be the victim. And I just think if we can just find a way to embrace one another, to love one another, to uplift one another, life and this world would be so much greater. I often tell people to examine our circles, examine those that are around us. You know, people are in our lives to either build us up or tear us down. They are in our lives to give to us or take away from us. They are in our power to, in our lives to either increase us or decrease us. We have to really examine that. And then we have to examine how are we showing up in the lives of others and ensuring and empowering that we're giving back. And I always point back to the those four letter, that four-letter word of love and just accepting people for who they are, not trying to change them. And, of course, we all have room for growth. We all have room to be better individuals, to be better humans. But first, people want to know that they matter. They want to know that you love them and you accept them for being who they are. And the church, in some churches, I can say we don't do a good job of that. We will shout, we'll I remember back being a little girl, people would walk the pews, flip over the pews, turn over the pews, sing, shout so good, and then they would go back on Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, Monday morning, on the phone, gossiping, talking about people, and not bashing the church, but that is what we, that goes back to the tradition of what we were, our comfort zone. And then as life has transitioned and the world has transitioned, now we have, you know, people who are seeing that they're, that they, may like someone who looks like them or acts like them or vice versa. And we just got to learn how to accept people and love people. And at the end of the day, I have to tell my church folks this. One, we have no heaven or hell to put anyone in. 
And, and two, whether they like it or not, God, and God will look differently for everybody. Whoever your creator is created us all, period. He didn't say, right, I'm going, that person didn't come for me. They came. No, he created us all. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. So my thing is, let's love one another. And that is the message across any spectrum, any setting that you will hear me talk about that we continue as a human race to miss. Mhm. Mhm. I know. I mean, I, I really, you know, that's it. When you stop and you think, and you know, and real love, love where it's like just showing that care for another person. Wow, yeah, compassion. Absolutely. Mhm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, really, you know, yeah. You know, show me rather than do it. You know, and like I said, kids are watching. We have kids who are living in poverty. Kids who have. You know, there's that other person who you can might be that person in that child's life to show love, and then they're able to give love. But if all they see is is hate and and everybody for themselves, how do you judgment, condemnation, all of those things? Yeah. No, really. Wow. You know. And so I, I encourage people also in that love. It also means creating safe spaces for people to to share about who they are, to share their struggles. And it is, I'm not even talking about specifically, um, you know, struggles that, that exist in the gay community of being, you know, being accepted or, you know, being ostracized. But I'm talking about just being a human being. Like when we talk about depression, um, and, you know, and God, you know, God is such a, he has such a sense of humor. And I, I've had to be, God has pushed me more to talk about a topic that people shun. And that is, like, I am a survivor of suicide. Um, I'm a survivor of depression. But you say that in the black community or you say that in certain sex areas, they look at you like you're crazy, like, you were, you did what? You, you let something overtake you? you? I mean, like, all this judgment versus saying, you know what? I'm glad you're still here. I'm glad you're an overcomer. I'm glad you passed through. Um, and, but then, you know, I have to think about those moments, and we learn this as preachers if you can only help just one. And as I've shared this story, I, people always come to me and say, you know, I can, you know, can you talk to me? This is what I'm feeling. So I can say by sharing my story, by sharing my testimony, um, has really helped people and helped impact lives, and that's all I care. Anybody want to judge me, that's your business. That's between you mm-hmm. and God. And at the end of the day, I have a friend that has a saying, that's your little red wagon for you to pull, not for me. I've heard that. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Now, you know, we do live in a diverse uh, diverse community. And, you know, we have people who practice different faiths. Now, how do you, I mean, how do you make sure that they know that this is a welcoming place if you are Muslim, if, if you're Buddhist? I mean, if there's anything... Because, you know, many people think, and we've heard horrible things from, um, unfortunately, people who are in power about, you know, members of the legislature just because they're Muslim. And we have many people who are Muslim. We have people coming in from other countries. How do we make that, how do you, what message do you give as you're talking in your position or just in your work of making it a welcoming community to these people who find God from another source and another voice. 
with another name. So I'm going to have to answer that question in a different way. Okay. Um, but if I had a quick answer, it would be that people have to love themselves and accept themselves first, which ties into my other answer. Oftentimes people can't accept other people because they don't love and accept themselves. Mm-hmm. So when I, I so I, I do talk about love um, and acceptance and embracing people and showing and having compassion, but it's it, oftentimes the reason that people are not welcome because maybe you're Muslim or because you know you could be a you could be a tree hugger or whatever the case may be. They don't they don't understand and people don't oftentimes don't try to understand other people who are not like them. And I often talk about sin. Um, my theology around sin is this, and that sort of ties into your question, is sin is anything that, from my perspective, so when you're in church, if, let's say, Sister Michelle drinks alcohol and Sister Karan smokes cigarettes, well, Sister Karan's going to say Sister Michelle's an alcoholic because I don't. She, I choose not to drink alcohol. Or, but yeah, I smoke, and I may smoke marijuana. I may smoke cigars. I may smoke um, any kind of anything. But then I'm also over here gossiping, keeping up discord, keeping up confusion. But I'm the holy one, and you're the bad one because you drink. So I think we have we we basically call sin or differences anything that we don't do. So I think what helps us out is not passing that judgment, not sending anyone to hell. I mean, like just not stop criticizing people and just embrace them. And I think when we learn to accept people's differences and be okay with that, we will be better. And that's what we struggle with. We want everyone to be like how we either think they should be or how or they we want people to be how we are. And that is wrong. People are that's what makes us so unique is that we are unique. We are different. And we've got to embrace that. Whether it is your ethnicity, whether it is your your gender, whether it's your socioeconomic status, whether it's your level of education all those things, but we are so super, such superficial people that we miss the core and the depth that people really bring to the table. Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I love talking to you. I, and I think that it, it's so important, the fact that you bring so much of yourself. I mean, the fact that you are able to talk to people and, you know, there's still stigma about mental health issues. You talk about depression. You talk about suicide. And, you know, just as, as you're able to tell, to talk about it, like you said, there, are, there might be someone who's sitting there dealing with the same thing, but because the stigma that our community has about it, they might not have said it or might not speak to someone or come and talk to you and get that encouragement to get the help that they need. Right. And, and I remember growing up, depression was, oh, I'm just feeling sad or I'm gloomy or we, take, we, medic, we self-medicate. 
versus dealing with the root cause of why am I sad, why am I feeling depressed, and, and you know, being ashamed to say that it was depression. I, mean, I remember growing up, if you went to a therapist, you were considered crazy, like literally mm-hmm. mentally crazy. And that thing, for you to say that, that that's crazy. <laughs> so um, I think that, you know, we just, we just got to, like, embrace the things that God has created or the creator has created for, to help us be better individuals and back to soteria to be that best holistic individual that we can. Because when I'm good and I'm better, I can help Michelle be good and be Michelle be better and vice versa. You know, it always goes back to, you know, how we often hear the thing where they tell kids, oh, it gets better, it gets better. But to have an example to say, I've been through, you know, I've been through the fire. I've been through what you have. You know, you know you're know, you not crazy. But then here it does get better. You have to, you have to show the path. And I think that that seems to be a lot of what, you know, dealing with holistic deliverance, and your body and mind and soul, I mean, you know, that's part of that. It's breaking down those those, those barriers, you know, where, where maybe someone will say, no, they're not being moody. Maybe they need some assistance, you know, where mm-hmm. we don't have to go like, oh, they killed themselves. Why didn't we know? Because you didn't see the signs or they couldn't tell you that they needed some help. And that is so important. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and the other thing, you know, I do so many things to keep myself grounded. Uh, I had someone visit my home not too long ago. And in my house, you can, there's things in my house that you very, it's very clear that I'm a Christian. But then there's also some things that, you know, like I may have chimes. I may have healing stones. Uh, I have this beautiful waterfall, in my opinion, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful waterfall of a, of a Buddha um, was just this is a fountain. It's just a calming fountain that has water that drips down on it. And I remember the person visiting my home, and they're like, "Why do you have that Buddha there?" And I was like, "Because it, it's a, it's it's symbolic of peace and serenity and uh, a calmness that I often need." And they was like, "Well, you know, you can't have that in two places. You can't have that with your with with your cross and." Absolutely, you can. If all of that keeps me mentally sane and keeps me grounded and keeps me from like chopping somebody up, yes, I can do that. You know, I have my stones that I carry with me to help. You know, touch my core or to you know to you know to deal with my, you know if I'm feeling anxious or whatever. So it may require different things to meet different pieces because we're not just things are just not one way. In life, mm-hmm. and I know that sounds we want it to be, but it's not. I mean, yes, I, I meditate. Yes, I am a true, authentic intercessor. I would, can pray you through some stuff, but I also, <laughs> can, but I can also sit and be quiet and be still. Mm-hmm. And I believe I, I believe that the, the Holy Spirit is still inter, intervening on my behalf, or inter, excuse, interceding on my behalf. So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm all about being holistic. You know, mm-hmm. all about it. I love I love that you know I love that because sometimes you need somebody to just sit and still be be still with you but sometimes you need somebody to help to help pull you through and pray you through I I really like that but we're gonna take our second break here and when we come back we're gonna talk about this conference that's coming back yes awesome.
Reflections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. on collections by Michelle Brown. Okay. Now you know Detroit has that <laughs> history with the NAACP. I, told, I talked about Dr. Sweet, but we have that dinner, you know, which we brag as being the largest dinner. You know, you know, NAACP Detroit, you know, we we got you. The conference is coming to Detroit. And Can I have to say, us? a shout out to the state conference president I love her. Yvonne White is an amazing mm-hmm. woman. Love her. Just had to do a shout out mm-hmm. real quick. Mhm. You know, I mean, it's like, like I said, if you know here, if you're in Detroit, at some point in time, you know, somebody, if you've been to that dinner, you know something about it, you've done that. I've watched over the years, like things come out, and and like I said, I know that it seems like to me. The NAACP is in that fight. You know, we're in a fight for our lives right now, for our humanity, for our our spirit. And the NAACP is in that fight. You're coming back to Detroit in July. Yes, and I have to tell you, it's you know, speaking of the the monumental moments of of Detroit, our current president CEO um, Derek Johnson is from New York. Oh my gosh. So I'm sure this is going to be an epic event. Again, we have so many things that we're celebrating. Not only is it our 110th year uh, convention, um, we have what we call the uh, experience, which is a health, which is excuse me, which is like the the pavilion exhibit space. Um, it's the 50 year anniversary for that, and then we'll get into the 10th year anniversary for the task force. But there's so many monumental things that's happening in at this convention, and uh, it's just going to be epic, and it's, I'm excited to be in Detroit. I love Detroit. Uh, some down, good home folks. It's, y'all South, y'all Southern as well, so, but I know y'all, y'all want to think y'all in the Midwest, and y'all are, but y'all still Southern as well. Y'all, y'all show hospitality, good-hearted people. Um, I just really love Detroit. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be July 20th to 24th. Um, so... First of all, did people have to be a member ahead of time? Can they join at the convention? What about membership? So you do not have to be a member of the NAACP to participate in our convention. Um, so the um, Saturday, let's talk about, so there's exhibit space that actually opens up on Saturday. So Saturday is like our kickoff. Um, so Saturday is open to the public. That is the only day that people can come from the community and actually come into the exhibit space and shop and go to our vendors. And we actually have a health pavilion, which is an amazing space, which is where I'll be overseeing, uh, one of the things I'll be overseeing. So um, come check us out. You do not need 
uh, at, you know, nothing to, to, you know, come in on Saturday. After Saturday, though, you to participate in the plenary sessions and the keynote events, you will need to have a, um, a, a minimum is a day pass. Day passes are fifty dollars. Um, if you want to go to some of these um, luncheons, the luncheons are ticketed events. Um, you can find all of this online up under the NAACP convention registration, and you can see what it costs. You can see how much the events cost. You can see. Um, what advanced registration uh, costs. I think um, for those people who are members, um, the rates are there. They're, they're out. You know, eventually registration will close, and then there will be on-site registration that will be available. And also, if you don't want to register for the whole conference, there are day passes that are available that you can get. And I believe a day pass is like fifty dollars um, for adults, and then twenty-five dollars for youth. So, um, but there's opportunities that you don't always need uh, a, a pass actually um, to get in. Uh, again, it happens to be on Saturdays, one of them, and uh, we'll get into, into some other spaces where they, a pass is not necessary. But we encourage everyone to register, and we definitely encourage everyone, everyone, to actually be a member. Membership is $30 a year. Um, I know we spend. It, that on our getting our nails did, Come getting on. our hair did. We we spent all of that on a pack of cigarettes. That's a, that's probably a quart, uh, half of what a pack of. I don't even know what cigarettes cost, but I'm sure mm-hmm. you spend thirty dollars on cigarettes, or whether whether you do that fifth, that that uh, I think it used to be Coke forty five, whatever. Like whatever you you love, you spend something money on something. And I'm just saying, continue to do what you work hard to do and, and enjoy, but also. Invest in your community, and that would be being a member of the NAACP. Because you never know. I mean, I can I get calls all the time for things that are, is happening in the in the world, and um, you know, people often say, you know, is NAACP relevant? And I'm going to say, yes, we're very relevant. You know, mm-hmm. do you feel? I mean, are we doing? Are we having those? Are you? Let me say, are you seeing us in the media as you did maybe during the civil rights movement? I'm going to say maybe, maybe not. But what I can tell you about the civil rights movement that we often don't talk about, the civil rights movement was not sexy, was not popular. Dr. King was not liked by a lot of people. But only when it became sexy and popular did people begin to hop on board. So, again, it goes back to what I was saying. We've got to stop waiting. We've got to be proactive. And we've got to stop waiting until some catastrophe or something traumatic happens to unify and to come together. Because when we do that on the front end, we can create that change that we need as a community. So that begins with, and I encourage you to, that it begins with just giving you $30 per year as an NAACP member. You may need us one day. You may not need us but at least you'll be supporting the community and supporting the people who do need us and that do benefit from us because we are relevant. Our work is relevant. We are becoming more and more relevant. Uh, we're excited about our new president, CEO, again, who is from Detroit, but he is doing phenomenal things for the association, and then a lot of the phenomenal things are going to come. And I can just tell you from one of the spaces that I oversee, which is the LGBTQ work and national partnerships, you know, when I talk to people, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, I've gotten some backlash where, you know, y'all haven't been seen. But you know what? We actually have done 
a plethora of work in that space. It's That's just, right. I mean, we just can't highlight every single thing we do. But we have a lot, a lot of wins. We have more wins than we have losses or lose, you know, that we're losing. So be a part of something good. Be a part of something that nobody, no grassroots organization or civil rights organization can say that they've been around for 110 years other than the NAACP. And I'm looking, you know, you're going to have an author's pavilion. And I'll tell you, I'm going to go there just to see the women who wrote for colored girls who have considered politics, Donna Brazil, Yolanda Carraway, Leah Daltrey, and Mignon Moore. I mean, you know, right there. Wow. You know, then you're going to have your health pavilion where I'll come to see you. <laughs> Wonderful. And what, what all are they going to do in the, under the health pavilion? So in the health pavilion, we have about 45 vendors, and, of course, they're all specific to um, health, and, and it's going to be anywhere from HIV screenings to blood pressure screenings. I mean, when you think about it, we're going to have it there. We're going to eat, when I talk about holistic, this, and I, I don't have her name in front of me, but um, she provides a mobile massage uh, service, and it is, I, I, I do massages, like that's one of my things that I call myself like the uh, massage connoisseur. So wherever I travel on, you know, in my leisure time, I actually enjoy trying different massage parlors. And this woman, and I hope she's listening, she actually has a massage uh, mobile unit that is like you would think you, I mean, she's got different settings. It could be a fireplace. It could be like it's, 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 so, it's so zen. So I'm excited about having her there. So we have, again, we have a little bit of everything on everyone that's going to be a part of the pavilion that all connects, connects you to being a healthy, more healthy individual. We have someone that's going to be doing exercise. She'll be also on center stage. We're excited about having her. Um, so a little bit of everything is going to be in the health pavilion. Actually, the health pavilion is one of the highlights and the major pieces of the overall exhibit space that's going to happen. And so it's not just that Saturday. Uh, the exhibit, um, the uh, health pavilion will actually, and the exhibit space will actually be going from um, Saturday, which is open to the public, and then on it'll continue on Sunday through Tuesday evening, which we will close down Tuesday evening. Will people be able to get, you know, information? Well, there'll be vendors there who help them get information about things we can do to live healthier. Oh, that's the, that's the whole health. Uh, those forty-five vendors within the health pavilion, which is, is which is actually inside the big um, exhibit hall, where there's other vendors. There's a specific space specific for health. Yeah, that's where the forty-five vendors. The, uh, now there's more than there's more than forty-five in the entire exhibit exhibit space, but there are at least forty-five health vendors. Mm-hmm. And I know there's going to be a career fair. Yes, that's going to be a career fair. Absolutely. And that's part of the exhibit space, yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, because, I mean, it's like so many great things. I mean, it's like feed your mind, get your body together, get a job. I mean, these are important things that it is all part of being healthy, you know, and being together, being holistically, so that you're going to come into this conference and you're going to walk out with your membership. <laughs> with your membership, but things that are going to feel, fuel your spirit so that, you know, this is just not like just a conference to walk through and go like, okay, well, it's fine. You know, there's some great things. What are some of the plenary sessions 
that people might want to attend in a day session? So, um, so the plenary we have three specific plenary sessions. Um, so we have our opening session, um, and so our, our theme for the convention is when we fight, we win. That's right. And that goes back to us unifying again, which is very important. So our opening session is actually Sunday, July the 21st. Our opening session is always um, offered by our chairman of the board, and our chair is Leon Russell, who is an amazing chair. I love him. I, he's an amazing man, a man with a great heart, a golden heart that really loves the people. So that is on, excuse me, that's on Sunday, July the 21st. And it's called the Public Mass Meeting, and it starts at 6 p.m. and goes from like 6 to 8.30. Um, the next big plenary will be on Monday, which is the opening session, which is always um, our keynote is always our president and CEO, and that's at 9 on the, that Monday. And then on Wednesday, our closing plenary session is actually at 8.30 in the morning, and it's actually called the CEO Panel Discussion with a focus on the our presidential candidates, and it's actually the presidential candidates forum. So it's going to be very, very, very interesting. And the, some of the presidential candidates will actually be present. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, that's something that, like you said, when we fight, we win. And that's part of it is like to make informed decisions. And this is so important. Now, you know, one of the things that also is coming up is like the 2020 census. Will you be? Um, will there be something there to explain to people why we need to participate in the census? What the census is about? Absolutely. So part of our work as an association and upon our new leader, our leader, President Johnson, um, he's really big on awareness around uh, civic engagement. And so we'll talk about um, the importance of the black vote. We'll talk about voter suppression and what that means and what that looks like and how it's in its full effect. We'll talk about the 2020 census, um, and we call that stand up and be counted and how that's very Mm -hmm. important. Uh, We'll talk about protecting equal access to education, uh, and we'll talk about some other things which I – we won't talk about on on, on air, but there will be some other things that as an association – uh, for the advancement of color people that we will talk about that to really, you know, remind you um, that you need to um, be aware of and be involved in, again, because our communities are impacted. I mean, you know, I think that's, uh, I, I love that thing that when we fight, we win. When we show up, we win. We saw it like in the, in the 2018 elections, you know, and people are like, oh, black people came out, black people, people of color came out. And when we show up, when we fight, we win. And, you know, there's so much at stake that, you know, to me, this theme, this conference in Detroit, because Detroit has that history, not only of civil rights, but of labor rights. I mean, so much as people came through here, you know, looking for a better life, to have that right here in Detroit, it is just like such the perfect timing to me. Well, and it's funny that you that you mentioned the 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 union because I want to say on the twenty fourth, the twenty fourth at one o'clock, it's massive. We have what we call the labor labor luncheon, and um, people from all over 
come in. We honor some people who are part of the, late, the, the, un, uh, the union, but um, it's all very relevant. I mean, what we really, the convention, we have five program areas as an association, which happens to be health, uh, education, criminal justice, economics, and education. And um, those are areas that we make sure that are highlighted and that workshops are focused on those particular areas. And some of those areas have multiple workshops. But you definitely will come to the convention with the materials that you need and to be equipped to go out that, so when we do fight we, so, to ensure that we win. So definitely. Now, will you be speaking? Will you be having a workshop? Will, if people want to come and meet you, will, they, will, they, will you be there? Will you be accepted? Oh, yes. Convention is not uh, a, a day on the beach for us. We are working very hard behind the scenes. So we get in early. We get in, get in, and we hit the – we literally, and I do not mean this facetiously or figuratively speaking, we literally hit the ground running. And so I am not speaking per se, speaking, speaking, but I uh, will be, again, overseeing the health pavilion. Uh, I'll be doing that Saturday through Monday. And then Tuesday is like my big day because I'm in charge as the LGBTQ staff liaison and over the national partnership for that space, I am in charge uh, of planning, executing, fundraising for our LGBTQ work. And so I'm excited to be on this call because we have the renowned Michelle Elizabeth Brown, who is one of our panelists for our workshop town hall that day. So let's talk about that. Um, on Tuesday, uh, July the 23rd, I think I have my day right, days right. Um, so on the 23rd at 2.30, we have a dynamic panel, and it's very heavy focus uh, from speakers from the Detroit area. And I want to talk about, so before I talk about the speakers, um, the LGBTQ Task Force um, Town Hall is, my vision has shifted from what it has been over the years. So the last, um, the last year and this year, and actually last year we were picked up by C-SPAN and it was actually shown, shown for two and a half hours. The whole entire t Town Hall was absolutely amazing and was historic. But the, the purpose of it is to, um, bring the LGBTQ community together and not have somebody that's, you know, a heterosexual or whatever that may be an ally, but to really have the voice of the community present. And what does that mean? That means that there is representation of every letter of that community on the panel uh, in addition to an ally. But it, for me, it was very, very important that the community be represented and be the voice of this particular space. So as our panelists this year, again, we have the renowned Michelle Elizabeth Brown. We have Curtis Lipscomb of the LGBT Detroit. We have Nicole Denson, who is an activist. And we have attorney uh, Robert Markman from a PFLAG national. He's a board member, but he, has, he's, he is an ally who has a gay son. And um, he's on the panel. And um, right now, we're holding on to who the moderator is, and we should be releasing that information. Uh, big announcement uh, as we get closer to um, 
to the convention day. And so that's the town hall workshop, and then that's from 2.30 to 4.30 in the Cabo Center. And the, our focus of discussion will be around, again, um, you know, the issues that exist in the gay community, which happens to be um, effective strategies, identifying effective strategies for the LGBTQ uh, community to be active, to be activists. Um, talk, we'll talk about acceptance and inclusion. We'll talk about why and what we can do around the representation of the community in the workplace, in Congress, and in media. And then just, again, the power of us coming together. Not only were we powerful in 2018 around you know, the election as, as, a, as a community of color, color that elected or helped elect President Obama, but also the, the gay community was very instrumental in that movement as well, uh, and that shows that when we unify even as, as, as a community of uh, the LGBTQ community, we actually have voting power as well that needs to be executed and maximized on. So that's what that space looks like. Following that, we transition to the Detroit Marriott at the Renaissance Center at 530, and we will have a reception. This year's reception is a little unique because of the 10-year anniversary. We will commemorate that anniversary uh, considering an honorary reception where we will actually honor uh, Julian Bond, um, mm. uh, Emeritus Julian Bond, who's passed on uh, back mm -hmm. in 2015, uh, who actually founded this task force for us to be able to do what we're doing in the LGBTQ community, along with Alice Huffman, who is the president a state conference president and board member. Uh, she's a state conference president for California and board member. So we will be honoring them at that reception and hearing from our sponsorship and hearing from our senior leaders here at the NAACP as well. And really, it's just really, it's really going to be a reception. Great food, um, great cocktails, a time to network and just to bond as a family and have fun. Mm -hmm. well, I have to tell you my Julian Bond um, story. You know, I grew up, you know, going Julian Bond, and I was at a HRC dinner in D.C., and he was oh, there, and he spoke. the best dinner and, ever. And I walked up to him, and, you know, it was like, you know, it's like, this is Julian Bond. And I looked at him, and I was literally speechless, which people are saying really happened. And he looked at me very kindly, and he said, I know, dear, I know. <laughs> and he patted my hand. And it was just like, it was like such a moment, you know. He was such a kind and gracious man. And it was just like so wonderful. It was like a hero moment, you know. Oh, that's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. He, I, I didn't work a lot with him because, of course, you know, he had transitioned. We had a new uh, chairman at the time when, by the time I came on 10 years ago. But when I did meet him, uh, I remember we were at, we did a special screening for the help. And uh, he sat behind me with his family. And he just was just a very humble man. And I think, of course, he's a handsome man as well. But he was just a very humble man. Um, mm -hmm. And, again, we wouldn't have this task force. I couldn't be doing um, this LGBTQ work and creating safe spaces if it wasn't for him. And I'm grateful for his vision and for his partnership with uh, President Huffman from California to be able to move the needle so we can advocate and fight for um, the rights and equality and equity for the uh, LGBTQ community. Well, you know, and I think that that's the other thing that I, I 
I thank you for inviting me to be on this panel. And, you know, and, it, and it's like full circle because I can tell people, I had that NAACP card. I never gave up my black card, and I never gave up my NAACP card. So, you know, and it's important that we're there and that we, we speak up, we show up, but also we let our community love on us and we love on them. Absolutely. we're black, we're gay, but first of all, we're a community. We are that village. Well, Reverend Sadler, I want to thank you so much for being with me tonight. I look forward to seeing you at the conference. Thank you. I look forward to having you and to host you. So you asked me what I'll be speaking, so I will definitely um, open up the town hall and um, turn it over to the moderator, and then, of course, I'll open up the reception. So, yes, I'll be speaking not in the capacity in which you've allowed me this opportunity to talk with you in depth uh, this, during this time, but I will definitely be front and center and working. Okay. Well, thank you again. I want you to have a good evening, and like I said, I'll see you very soon here in Detroit. Thank you so much. Peace and blessings to you. God bless you. I want to thank today's guest, the NAACP's National Manager of Health Programs, Reverend Karan R. Sadler. The 110th NAACP Convention comes to Detroit, Michigan, July 20 to 24, 2019. The NAACP is the nation's oldest and largest civil rights organization. The theme for this year's conference is when we fight, we win. Conference schedule and registration information can be found at NAACPConvention.org. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of intersectionality and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.